Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got with me Chris Rowling. And Chris is going to talk to us about raising funding, looking at the state of the investor market. So, Chris, hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Chris, before we get into the, the subject at hand, tell me a little bit about Chris Rowling. Ah. It's a convoluted journey, I'll tell you. It's, and, and we certainly don't have, have enough time to go through it in detail. But I've been with CoinMe, which is a cryptocurrency blockchain company here in the US for about four years. Prior to that, I spent uh, the vast majority of my career, which is, let's call it 30 years uh, overseas. So I've lived in uh, 13 different countries speak a number of foreign languages. I have worked for multinationals down to startups. And I, I kind of put CoinMe much more towards that startup side of the spectrum. I have worked in headquarters. I've worked in the field, local offices, just about every industry you can imagine from chemicals to entertainment to EMI music, on and on and on. And it's, it's been a journey. It's been good fun. I'm very much a generalist, not a specialist. I've worked in pretty much every area of the finance function, be it you know accounting, controller, CFO, M&A, strategy, business development. Uh, I've been a COO. I've been a CEO. And the roads have kind of led me back to being a CFO for a hyper-growth company in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. It's been a career filled with some trophies and lots of scars, but uh, it's been good fun. I've learned very much from uh, each and every you know situation. Brilliant, brilliant. But Chris, this, as I scan your resume, it's got uh, CFO role in various large companies, including Getty Images, Kellogg, PepsiCo. But you're previously a partner in Ernst & Young. Now, we just put out some research on routes to CFO. And very, very rarely do you see an individual who has been both a CFO and a big four partner. You, know, you tend to take a route up through the big four, maybe starting in audit. You might get to a manager level, move across to industry. You move up through industry and perhaps become CFO. But very rarely do you swap between the two at a very senior level. So what's that all about, Chris? Tell me some more. Yeah, I mean, it was a detour, which made sense to Ernst & Young and made sense to me at the time. That was five, six years ago. I was based in Hong Kong and was coming out of 10 years in the private equity practice, both as a deal partner as well as an investment partner. And what Ernst & Young was trying to do was to expand their private equity footprint more so than just simply being, we're the guys who do due diligence for the deals, we're guys that do audit for the portfolio companies, and they very much wanted to expand that, let's just say, value proposition such that, hey, we can come in and help you source deals, we can help you do the due diligence. We can help you with the 100-day plan. 
which is very, very critical from a private equity perspective. You know, now that you've invested, what are you going to do with it? You know, we can help you with tax advice. We can then help you with divestment. And essentially, they felt, oh, well, it would be a good sales proposition if we actually had people that came from the private equity world. And that was me. And so the thinking very much was to hire me as what they call a direct admit partner. So this is essentially somebody who kind of comes scooting in from the side. They haven't really done their time or worked their their way up the ranks. And as you know, the big four is very hierarchical, uh, et cetera. And so coming in as a direct admit partner is certainly a cultural shock, not only for the existing partners, but also for me, because you don't know the rules, you don't know the regulations, you haven't spent 20 years working your way up to a partner status. So you're you're somewhat industrially savvy, but completely unaware from a from a big four perspective. And and that that brings with it quite quite a few challenges, unless you're you're prepared to cope with the the books of regulations and and what you're allowed to say to whom, when and where and why, et cetera. And so there was logic in the move. It did work out fairly well. You know, the structure of Ernst & Young and many of the big four is one in which you have very focused markets. Uh, so you may have a market, certainly in terms of Asia, you'll have a Singapore EY, a Japan EY, et cetera, et cetera. And private equity is very much regional, if not global. And so to try to, let's just say, herd the cats and, and garner the resources that you need on a regional basis you often end up having to negotiate with each of these little entities, which again is is somewhat suboptimal. We get it done, but you obviously want to put on the face of we're one firm, we're a global firm, and we're here to support you however you need it, Mr. Private Equity Firm. But um, anyhow, long-winded way of saying uh, that's why I ended up as a partner in Ernst & Young. You know, I very much craved getting back into that startup environment. And so when, you know, the opportunity arose to move back to the States and join literally a kind of a leading edge industry and a leading edge company, I left. And uh, it was the right time to come back to, to uh, Seattle, which is where I'm based. Albeit, you know, little did I know that uh, COVID was right around the corner. And rather than globe trotting, I'd be working out of the home office. Uh, Tell me a little bit more then about, about CoinMe. Yeah, I mean, CoinMe is certainly the the leading exchange, cryptocurrency exchange in the United States, whereby we facilitate fiat or cash to crypto transactions and, and vice versa. And what we do is we have a, a proprietary API whereby we crypto enable legacy financial institutions. It could be banks that have fleets of ATMs. It could be a money gram with a number of counters you know, in supermarkets or elsewhere, all of whom want to be in the cryptocurrency market, but they either don't have the technological capabilities or more so they don't have the licensing to be able to do that. And what we do on, on kind of a B2B basis is we provide that technology, we provide the licensing, and essentially we allow these institutions to outsource their cryptocurrency business to us. And so it's been absolutely fantastic business for us. We don't speculate. We don't hold any of the cryptocurrencies. You know, obviously we're, we're 
paid based on transactions. And so the more transactions, the better. And so, you know, it sounds bizarre, but the volatility of late has actually been quite helpful because you have many more buy transactions, many more sell transactions, and we essentially get that transactional income. The Our route to market is very much partnership driven. And so we started out with a very large partnership with a group called Coinstar. We then moved to our second global partnership with a group called MoneyGram, which is very much in the remittance business. And so really our use case is very much around people who want to remit funds, people that want to make payments using crypto. And then you obviously have the the punter or, you know, I don't want to say the gambler, but the person who wants to invest and either hold or buy or sell. And, you know, really we're kind of in the sweet spot of all three, you know, the remittance business, the payment business, and then the, let's just call it investment side of the business. Yeah. I suppose that brings us around to that that question we started to say we, we were going to talk about on on the show this week to start off with the current state of investor funding. So, what is the current state of investor funding, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I've been through probably like you. I've been through a couple of cycles, so that that somewhat dates me. Yeah, and you always know there's kind of a silver lining to every cloud. And what's a little bit different this time is you still have a tremendous amount of dry powder that's out there from a VC perspective and a private or a private equity perspective. And so many of these firms have raised very large funds. They're being compensated very nicely for it on their typically their two and 20 funding guidelines. As a result, there's no shortage of funds. What has happened, however, is people are going into the kind of what I call the deer in the headlights phase where it's like, oh my God, what's just happened? And as a result of that, there's the inevitable pause. And I think we're currently in that pause. So people have money. They're being compelled to invest because they want to raise the next fund, obviously. But they're kind of waiting for the public comps and the public markets to settle because very much the private company valuations are predicated on those public comps. And so what we're seeing now, and in fact, we're actually out in the market trying to raise funding as as we speak, is we have a lot of interest, but there's a lot of debate in terms of, okay, now just exactly what is your valuation? You know, we've seen public comps come down 40%. So therefore, does that mean your valuation should come down 40%? And you get into a lot of debate and a lot of arguments in terms of you're comparing apples with oranges, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a pause. And the issue with that pause is if you do not have enough cash runway, you can get yourself into into a predicament. Hmm. And I'm I'm always a, a firm believer in preparing for the worst, but hope for the best. And we very much at CoinMe have been so focused on cash. I mean, we, we say the customer is king, but I'll tell you, cash cash is a close number two. And you know, we're very focused on everything we can do to extend that cash runway. But, and we've done that through debt. We've done that through convertibles. Unfortunately, the business model is not such that we can do any sort of asset-based financing because we're, we're asset-like. We don't have receivables because all of our revenues are transaction-based. 
And so you can't get into the recurring revenue borrowing. And so we're either faced with bank debt or convertibles, and we've done convertibles in the past, or conventional, let's go out and, and raise a Series B or a Series A, et cetera, et cetera. So the interest is there. Things are moving very slowly, but I think it's very much predicated around, okay, now just exactly what is that valuation? How do you justify that valuation? And it's the trade-off between how much do you raise versus how much are you willing to eat in terms of dilution? And, and that's always you know the predicament. Always the great question. Given, but given the uncertainty of what's going on now, it's a hard trade-off, but you really need to ensure that you've got that cash runway. Yeah. So runways, because it will take longer than you anticipate. Yeah. Runways number one, but you talked about the valuation potentially being a little volatile and that being the the, the issue. You know? What can you do in this sort of climate to, to kind of sustain the valuation? I mean, it comes down to growth, obviously. I mean, if you're a hyper-growth company, if you're growing that top line, that's certainly something that sets you apart from many of your public comps where your sales may be single digit, maybe problematic, may actually be down, et cetera. And so I think the fact that you're, you can qualify as a growth company is one. The other thing that we've done quite well is to try to separate ourselves from being thrown into the cryptocurrency environment. I mean, the reality is we're very much a fintech. We're very much technology-driven. We're B2B, albeit we are touching the consumer. So we're kind of more B2B2C. And as such, we try to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of, yeah, there's a lot of volatility. There's a lot of problems in that crypto world. But quite frankly, what we're doing is we're crypto-enabling pretty mainstream U.S. banks. And, and you know, MoneyGram has been around for decades. And, and you take a look at the customer reputations and you say, okay, these are, these are pretty reputable clientele. So I think the positioning is, is quite significant and, and definitely helps sustain, if not grow that valuation. But I've been on both sides of the table. So I've been an investor for 10 years. Now I'm on the other side of the table in terms of being the guy asking for money. And it's a debate. And it's a negotiation. The more money you have on your balance sheet and the longer your runway, the more negotiating power you have when you're asking for investment. Yeah. Um, and I've played, I've played the game where it's, okay, now what's your cash burn? How much do you have on your balance sheet? And okay, I'll come back and I'll see you in three months. And the valuation will be much more reduced than had I have had many more months. So it's an art, not a science. And But at the end of the day, what's happening in the public markets does definitely have a correlation on our valuation or, or anybody else's valuation for that matter. So, Chris, at the moment, we're hearing lots of talk in the media about recession, about overall dipping economic growth rates. But against that, I'm seeing loads and loads and loads of fintech startups, fintech companies trying to grow fast. Do you think the market can actually sustain the number of fintech companies that are out there and growing at the moment? I mean, it's tough to say because each has their own little niche and, and each may have their own little value proposition, et cetera, et cetera. I think generally speaking, and I've lived through the internet boom, 
where you saw the exact same thing and you saw a lot of B2C startups and the recession or the the bursting of the bubble did kill off quite a few. And it's, it's kind of back to my separate the wheat from the chaff. Fundamentally, you need to have a business that makes sense. You need to have a business that will become EBITDA or cash flow positive within a reasonable time frame. You know, I've worked for companies, I've seen companies that are just completely focused on sales. But the problem is you can't grow yourself out of a recessionary environment if you don't have that cash, either the ability to bring in cash or the ability to sustain yourself through positive cash flow. And so I think what will happen is you'll have a lot of these fintechs. There will be a combination. Um, and we're actually looking at this in terms of what acquisition or, or merger opportunities could, could come. Fortunately, we're in an area which is very highly regulated, albeit it's still not black and white. Um, it's still a little bit of a black box in terms of what certainly the US government, be it the SEC, once for crypto and blockchain. And so what we've done is we've just unilaterally decided to take the high road and to basically set the high mark. We've spent the last three years, you know, basically bringing ourselves into a rec regulatory compliance far and above what many of these startups have attempted to do. And it's cost us three years, millions of dollars. But I believe as a result of that, once that regulation does come in, we can check that box. And that's really open water between us and many of these fintech startups. And I think many of these startups will not have the time, they will not have the cash runway to be able to get themselves to that regulatory compliance level. And so they'll, they'll fall by the wayside. So again, a long-winded way of saying, I think there will be a fallout. I think there will be a, a bit of a shakeout. But there will be stars and, and there is quite a bit of technology in the banking space and in the fintech space, uh, you know, particularly with blockchain and there will be winners and there's going to be a lot of casualties as well. Yeah. Yeah. So earlier on, Chris, you said that the private equity houses and so on still had the funds to invest. There's definitely money out there. So if you're in a company that's looking for funds at the moment, how would you work out where to go? Which fund is right for you? Which investment house is right for you? Yeah, I think the answer depends on whether you've raised money previously or whether you're kind of new to the game and, and you know, sourcing your first funding. If it's a follow-on round, Obviously, you know who you've approached previously, you know your current investors, and the reality is your current investors actually help quite a bit in terms of making introductions to other like-minded investors, and obviously having your existing investors invest in your round is, quite frankly, a, a seal of approval in that we've invested you're on track with your business model, with your progress, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think if it's a subsequent financing, it's a little bit more straightforward. And there are lists and companies that provide databases that you can actually drill down and take a look at who has made investments in either competitive companies in your space, you know, partner companies in your space. 
So I can very easily troll these databases for who are the active investors in the crypto blockchain space? Who are the guys that are doing seed? Who are the guys doing series A? Here are the guys doing series B. Here's a list of their portfolio companies. Uh, here's a list of their average check sizes. And so there's a tremendous amount of data out there that is available either for free or you can pay for that definitely helps you narrow down and come up with a short list of people to approach. But obviously, your existing investors are, are very much not only fundamental to the fundraising, but also quite useful in terms of, of making those introductions. And then again, you can go down the road of engaging third parties, be it placement agents. Typically, where I've used placement agents is where we're trying to raise funds overseas or from overseas, where I either don't have a, say, call it a Japanese Rolodex. I don't have the database of Japanese investors. And there you almost kind of want to pay somebody for their expertise, their networks. And, you know, as long as you can fashion it as you get paid based on your success, it's a win-win for everybody. And so in some cases, using third parties is certainly helpful. But if you're using a third party in your local market, it can get a little bit messy in terms of, okay, which investor are you going to talk to? Oh, I've already talked to them. Carve outs. It gets quite complicated. And so the use of third parties outside of your home market could make some sense. But again, as I said, it's, it's an art, not a science, but it's gotten a lot easier just given the databases and given the internet and given the knowledge that's out there in terms of being able to go in and say, okay, these guys just funded somebody very similar to us. Let's make the approach. Mm. So that, there's a lot of doing your homework there. There is. I mean, you, you know, fundamentally, you need to be what I call investor friendly. Yeah. And so you need, obviously, that compelling concise pitch deck, which makes sense. And, and having seen tens of thousands of pitch decks, I can literally think to, you know, maybe two handfuls where I'm like, my God, that's that's really compelling. It catches me. I actually read all 10 pages. And, you know, many times you see a 50-page, 60-page deck. And so I think by becoming investor-friendly, that also helps. But it's a sales job. I mean, when you're going out raising money, you're selling the company, you're selling the management team, and it's marketing, quite frankly. And, and having that pitch deck is certainly fundamental. Making the right approaches, which kind of ties back to my prior answer, is, is fundamental. You know, you need a data room, a virtual data room, which is exhaustive, rather than going by every investor's due diligence checklist, which is in many ways duplicative. It's a time burden. And so having that pitch deck, having quite a robust data room, and also even having that purchase agreement and, and the terms written up and ready to go and, and ready to be negotiated, all of that assists. But significantly, what it does is it shortens the time cycle, which again, is, is quite fundamental. But uh, becoming investor-friendly is key. So I think there's some great lessons coming out there. I mean, we, we started off talking about the, the fact that the time cycles are taking longer at the moment. You need a good cash runway. That sounds as though as well, if you're, if you're going into the next round of fundraising, don't leave it 
till the last minute to start off. Get in there well before you actually need it. But also the lessons coming out there is going, being well prepared, being very well prepared, have all the information there up front, ready to go. So in terms of, say, you're looking for funds in six, 12 months time, you should be starting that process now. Yeah. I would agree. We've come out of a cycle where, and and certainly I'll speak for CoinMe, raising money was fairly straightforward. It it was fairly easy. And, you know, we could raise convertible debt within a couple of weeks, et cetera, et cetera. And, And what has happened now is that easiness has gone away. And so what you end up with is not only do you need to start that fundraising sooner, i.e. before you actually need that fu- those funds, you in parallel really need to focus on that cash and the liquidity. And that's in terms of very robust cash flow forecasting. We literally are doing daily cash flow updates, what bill went out, what didn't go out. Obviously, chasing cost savings from either the low-hanging fruit to the more difficult, which is kind of always around headcount and and manpower and HR planning, because it's always difficult to to reduce headcount. But in most companies, your headcount is 50 to 60% of your fixed costs. And so it's quite difficult to have any form of robust cost savings without at least approaching the idea of maybe we should slow down on the hiring. Maybe we should slow down on the backfilling of people that may leave. Maybe we need to go down the path of actually reducing headcount. But really in parallel to that fundraising, you really have to manage for cash. And not only is that driving sales, but driving margins, but it's cost savings. And you have to do both in parallel. Yeah. And if you put that in context with that first 100 days that you talked about early on, the importance of having the first 100 days of what are you going to do with this money once you've got it, you're going to be investing that in growing the business quite quickly. So to some extent, we're talking about cost savings, maybe headcount reductions, but we're also talking about big growth. And those, those two don't necessarily sit naturally together, do they? No, they don't. They don't. And there's a healthy conflict conflict that every CFO has with their CEO. The CEO is very much focused on top line. And, and in many cases, the CFO is very focused on bottom line. And it's, it's a healthy tension. And you're right. There are trade-offs between growing the business and cash, cash savings or, or cash flows. I think what we have done and, and what we do successfully is we look at, okay, now, if we do hire that person, what do we anticipate that cash payback to be before that person is up the learning curve, able to contribute to new revenues or productivity uh, improvements, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of that is, there's no hard science to that either. And so it's healthy debate. It's trade-offs. Fortunately, we are not in a business where we have heavy capex requirements. But certainly, you know, as a former private equity professional, you know, you always you never really wanted to go down that capex route because it would always be a three-year or four-year payback. And your hold period in private equity could be three to five years. And so you say, yeah, 
anything more than a three-year cash payback is not going to benefit us. And so therefore kind of defer that. When you're in a company and you're operating that company, it's it's slightly different. And so it's a debate. We try to quantify it to the best that we can, albeit in some cases you can't, but it's taking bets. It's looking at, at success probabilities. And in times like this, you're not necessarily going to be rewarded as much in terms of that sales growth as you are in terms of me saying to an investor, I have 12 months of runway, but we're raising money now. We also have growth. These are the trade-offs that we're making. However, once we do ob- obtain that, that financing, this is our use of proceeds. And our use of proceeds are obviously going to be geared towards growth. And that could be marketing, could be headcount, could be looking to go international, which is where we're at the moment. Um, and so a lot of our use of proceeds is very much at growing the business geographically, as well as through new partnerships. But it's a debate I've lived through for decades, and there's no easy answer other than whoever kind of bangs the table the loudest. Chris, absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Now, I should say at this point, if you're listening to this and you realize that your organization needs to go through a a fundraising exercise in the near future, and a lot of what Chris and I have been talking about this on this show sounds like a foreign language. Well, in Grow CFO, we've got the fundraising simulator where in a, a safe environment, you can go through the simulation of an entire fundraising process, produce the pitch decks, talk to the investors, and really learn about that process. So if that interests you, please drop either myself or Dan Wells a line at Grow CFO and we can talk further. But Chris today. Thank you. That has been a really, really interesting journey through the the world of fundraising in a bear market where things are really disrupted. Huge thanks. No, my thanks, Kevin. Thanks again for the opportunity.